This is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. I'm Biddy Martin, president of Amherst College. In this episode, Freddie Bryant, class of 87, who was known to his classmates as Freddie Hollister, explains how the different subjects he studied connected and informed one another, and how a comprehensive liberal arts education enriched his music. Here's Freddie. My name is Freddie Bryant. Actually, my full name is Frederick Bryant Hollister. And uh, this is key because um, Freddie Bryant is my stage name and Bryant was my mother's family name. And Hollister is my father's name. I'm a musician, a guitarist and composer, band leader, and teacher as well, a professor at Berklee College of Music. And for five uh, years, I was alone and astray teaching at Williams College. I think you guys probably know about Williams College. Anyway, I liberated myself from there and now I'm at Berkeley for the last almost 10 years. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. Freddie Bryant is an accomplished jazz guitarist whose career has brought him to 55 countries and led to collaborations with countless other prominent jazz artists. Freddie has released eight albums, has been featured on many more, and is also a longtime member of the Mingus Orchestra. A 1987 Amherst graduate, Freddie is also dedicated to education both as a lifelong student and as a teacher. In 2004, he was selected to be a Copeland Fellow at Amherst and has spent the last nearly two decades teaching music and the arts to students around the world. Music was an integral part of Freddie's life right from the outset. Growing up in New York really was the key influence for where I am now. You know, my father was an elderly white American and my mother was decades younger African American. They met playing music in the 50s and married in 1959. I heard lots of music, classical music, but I also had a great sense of my African-American side that I wanted to uh, learn about blues and spirituals. My mother sang spirituals um, and, uh, and then that developed as a taste for jazz. And that was supported by my family. Um, but I always played both classical and jazz. Freddie grew up on the Upper West Side of New York City in the 60s and 70s in a family that was deeply intertwined with the cultural, political, and activist milieu of the era. His father, Carol Hollister, was a pianist and regular accompanist for his mother, Beatrice Rippey Hollister, stage name Miss Rippey. Beatrice was a Harlem native who was trained by Abby Mitchell, one of Harlem's renowned vocalists and teachers. After one 1966 performance, she was heralded by a reviewer in the New York Times who wrote, 
One was struck immediately by Miss Rippy's poise. Her voice was supple, mellow texture, a sweetness and sensitivity that is quite captivating. Here's Miss Rippy singing Come Slowly Eden, accompanied by her husband on piano, recorded at a Lincoln Center performance. bucolic Upper West Side where people will, if you go on Facebook and uh, Facebook groups for growing up on, on the Upper West Side in the, in the 70s and the 60s and the 80s, you just hear about crack epidemic and getting mugged and, and all that kind of stuff. It was just perfect for me. Um, you know, I was going to school by myself when I was six years old. And my mother says she used to tail me you know, to make sure everything was good, you know, follow me to Simic. But I, I had my bus pass and I'd go to school 20 blocks up and um, come back on my own, definitely by seven, eight, nine, you know, learning a lot from just being on the streets, but with parental influence. I'd be up and down the street and my mother would just have to open the window and say, Freddy, come back, it's lunchtime. Freddy, don't go around the block. I told you not to go around the block with the bicycle. Come back. I see you there, come, you know. So it was just right there. It was all there and we'd hear the music coming out. They would rehearse, you know, I'd hear them practicing while I was playing cops and robbers or something like that. Uh, tag, you know, stick ball. It was great. And I had, uh, because they were artists, I had people come to my birthday parties, like my 13th birthday party, like James Earl Jones, uh, uh, Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee, who were just amazing um, actors and also in the political realm of being progressive in New York City. Pete Seeger was a family friend. My father played for Paul Robeson, who was, you know, just one of the amazing figures in the 20th century. They would give performances together, and I have a poster that's still on my wall of them performing in the behind the Iron Curtain with Paul Robeson in honor and in support of Angela Davis, who was in prison at the time. I went up to Angela the other day and I said, were you at this event? She said, no, I couldn't have been. I was in prison that, that year. And so it was a, an event to support her and get her freed. And this kind of community was sheltered from some of the racism. But within the Upper West Side, there was always, uh, 
there's always been, and especially in an inner city place, the push and pull of different people. And, and uh, there's definitely been redlining built buildings that are all white. In fact, I think we're the only family of color in the 52 years we lived in our place until last year that I remember living there. By six, Freddie picked up an interest in music. I started to turn pages for my father uh, when, he w when I was about six years old. So my brother, who my half-brother, was about 35 years older than me. And uh, he <laughs> told my dad at some point, Pop, he called him Pop, I called him Dad. He said, Pop, you know, I don't think I can come to turn your pages, you know, next Sunday uh, at Town Hall in New York. Uh, just too busy, you know. <laughs> he probably was in his 40s. Um, and so my father said, okay, Freddie, come over here. <laughs> when I nod, turn the page, you know. And so, you know, at the, the time I could see high notes, I could see low notes, I knew what whole notes were, I could see words come in, I could read a little bit, even though it was in German or Italian or French or sometimes English, I could see when my mother's notes came in. And so um, uh, that's how I got it started uh, turning pages for my father in these, you know, great places like Lincoln Center and Town Hall. And I remember coming out of that show and having one of my father's students congratulate me saying, that was so great, Freddie, I saw you. You turned it exactly when your father nodded. And then I looked at my father with an evil eye and said, you didn't have to nod. I knew when to turn the page, you know, don't treat me like a kid, you know. And he said, Freddie, don't you understand? You know, sometimes you want to see the last note on the page. Sometimes you want to turn it earlier so you can see the notes on the next page. So don't worry, I, I nod like that to everybody. <laughs> anyway. I said, senior year of high school, mom, I want to be a, a musician. <laughs> or maybe it was junior of high school, because you said, well, haven't you learned anything from growing up in this family? I mean, it's hard, it's difficult, you know, every month there's uh, no money in the bank, you know, it's month to month. And, uh, you know, I teach at all these schools and I'm playing, you know, and so your father's teaching at these schools and has private lessons and we're playing concerts here and there. But if you really want to do that, I said, well, look, mom, I either want to be a, a musician or an actor. And she said, okay, well, you could be a <laughs> musician, but you have to get a four year degree. You know, you have to get and don't go to a conservatory. For Freddie, there was already one school on his radar. Freddie's father was a student at Amherst College during World War I. He was a conscientious objector to World War I. And everybody else was in, dressed in fatigues and going out and working out and doing kind of basic training. I always remembered that story, you know, 
from you know his youth being at the time a pacifist and totally against uh, violence. I, I respected my father, you know, especially looking back on it. Politically, I, I respected him because I, I, I knew that he grew up in a time when Jim Crow and, uh, and he had to work for racists. And he would tell me about in the 30s how he worked with one particular person, I won't mention his name, for so many years and had to hear these stories of uh, racist stories, you know, um, hanging out on yachts and and uh, smoking cigars with these, these uh, you know, cliche artists of the day. And uh, remembered that he, he quit finally when 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 FDR died, and uh, and they were on this boat. This is how I remember it as a kid. The artist said, "FDR died. Well, thank God. It's a, about time, or something like that." So the next day, he just wrote his letter of resignation, and, and so he was very principled. But musically speaking, my father came there uh, and he had to do the same thing that I had to do. He had to make music on his own at Amherst. In 1918, basically he played organ for the Sunday chapel. Um, and then I'm sure he played lots of other music. But because Amherst was small, because he had dreams of succeeding, he only stayed at Amherst for one year and then traveled to, to the big city, New York, you know, to become a musician. It's, it's strange the pull that Amherst has on people, especially with my father who was there only one year and was probably an outcast being a conscientious objector and having to live off campus. But yet, he um, really felt a, as an alum from Amherst. He, he only was there for one year, and um, but he had this pull that, that would always bring him back to Amherst. And I had always been um, rebellious of going to Amherst College because I went up with my father and mother to these reunions with all these people with white hair and balding people who were just like... Like, I could not imagine myself uh, hanging out with anybody like them. So I was really uh, rebellious. Uh, but then at that point, I said, oh, well, you know, I, I had that plan. I, the, the plan sort of conceived itself uh, in terms of being able to stay in the jazz scene in New York and, um, and you know, connect with people and, and still get a four-year degree uh, and a good education to uh, satisfy my mother, who never went to college. Uh, she uh, is an 18-year-old from Harlem and the Bronx, studied with one of the original Porgy and Best cast members, and then just came out and started playing music. She wanted to see if a four-year education in college might benefit me in some way. After getting accepted to Amherst, Freddie devised a compromise between his father's path and his mother's hopes for him. He would get the degree his mother wasn't able to get for herself, and at the same time, he would pursue a musical career through his proximity to New York and Boston. My first week in campus, 
would probably be connected to where I was living, which was Valentine Hall, which is right above the food. So I could smell the food. And I just had to walk down a stairway to get there. My room was right above the stairway to the right, I believe. It had a window that went on to the uh, huge patio that 10 to 15 rooms probably shared. You could walk over there and look over on the other side as people came in to Valentine to eat. So that was like, like a little beach, you know? <laughs> Put towels out there, sun. Of course the grass, I loved the grass, but, but that black asphalt top just, it just was a little bit of freedom. You know, just to open the window and open the, sh the, the, the screen and just climb out, you know. I had a pretty good sense of what I thought Amherst would be like, because my father had gone there for one year. They would come back and give concerts at Buckley Hall. I really, to progress in my jazz playing, had to be very proactive on my own. Because at the time, Amherst didn't have much of a jazz program at all. Actually, they didn't have anything. The reason why I came was to be, be driving distance from New York, which was the lifeblood of my, uh, and dreams of becoming a musician. And driving distance to Boston. And I figured I would be able to use the five college system and study with Max Roach, amazing, brilliant um, bebop drummer. And uh, I would also get to do jazz in July with him in the summer at UMass. So I got to play as the fourth member of the Max Roach Quartet uh, in place of the great trumpet player Cecil Bridgewater. So I, what I was surprised was is that, that, that basically the on-campus Amherst College jazz experience was in, it had to be inspired and, and created by the student. So I really had it strategically planned out, you know, driving distance to these jazz meccas and uh, jazz greats around the, the Pioneer Valley. Um, yet <laughs> on campus, I was, I was, you know, it was just my show. So finally I get to Amherst College and I make use of my closeness to Boston. I went and visited all these people and this was October 1st of my freshman year while I was walking around the Boston uh, streets with my friend some security guard at, at Berkeley mangled my name said, Michael, do you know, is there a guy named Fred McAllister or Fred, you know, whatever, what he said. And uh, his father just died. And I had, that's how I found out about that. And I just remember the the ride back to Amherst uh, with my friends uh, was just uh, uh, kind of torturous. My sister was at Stoney Burnham, which was lucky. She was a junior and in high school and was 
in Greenfield, Stony Burnham Boarding School. So only you know half an hour away from from where I was. So they had somehow tracked me down pre cell phones days and called everywhere around Boston to find out where I was, you know. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty intense welcome to Amherst College. Halfway through my Amherst career, I, I, I realized that I needed to leave. So I, I hearkened back to my father's experience and in my proposal to spend my junior year abroad in New York City. I said, I wouldn't want to have to do what my father did, which was leave Amherst to go to New York to become a professional musician. I'd love to be given this opportunity to go study with the people that I've pointed out in my application. I would love to do that and then come back to Amherst and then show you the results of that year um, with a classical thesis and a jazz thesis. And they bought it. <laughs> it happened to be my most expensive year at Amherst College, but Amherst College was was good with grants and scholarships and Pell Grants and all these other things. Somehow we made it work and I managed to do that and, and finish my four years at Amherst that my father had not been able to do. After that initial trip to Boston, when, before my father died in, in the first month of being at Amherst College, I never went back to Boston again. Pretty uh, sure that there was some subconscious, you know, aversion to being on those streets and, and that memory. But I, then I would go back to New York every other week and um, play in sessions and get gigs and uh, work towards uh, getting summer gigs, playing music. So the plan worked out. I, I will admit here right now, I did not take one math course. I did not take one science course, unless you consider sociology science. <laughs> so I was political science, English, history, you know, sociology, music, black studies, I, you know, I was, but it helped feed my soul and my, my brain and heart in terms of uh, uh, what I was interested in. It also helped me musically in my musical growth uh, um, because I always connected words with music even though my mother sang in seven foreign languages and I didn't know any of them. I uh, 
loved music just for the music and sometimes and still can um, obscure the lyrics because I'm listening to the music so much. While Freddie succeeded in accomplishing his original mission as an Amherst student by creating a jazz education for himself, he did find that, like the New York City of his childhood, Amherst was an imperfect place. Back growing up in my progressive New York world, I was, I was cynical about racism and, and solving this hundreds of year old question, especially if it was, you know, just about going to upstate New York and having, going to the town pool and having people yell coon at you, you know, when you're driving away. You know, that's what I grew up with. I was in that bubble of Upper West Side, you know, where you could possibly uh, think, uh, you know, we're at a certain stage where everything is acceptable and there's integration and all that. But then you go out and then you see this backlash of, uh, you know, just due to an interracial couple, you know, not even a black couple. So, I mean, I, I really didn't expect much. So when I went to Amherst, I was expecting this uh, whiteness. I immediately was drawn to the BSU and um, Charles Drew. So I had... I. I could survive in that uh, it wasn't a culture shock because I was used to it. And I could survive, more than survive, I can thrive in it because I had, you know, kindred spirits there. And, you know, we're still friends today. So, you know, and there's the alumni aspect. I remember being a student there and... Uh, looking forward to and appreciating the Black Alumni Weekend. And they would, you know, meet with us and, you know, we'd meet these people who seemed to be ancient, but they're probably over, you know, younger than I am now. But they were, even though they were ancient, you know, I'm, I, I had a father who was, you know, born in 1901 and older than these guys. So I could still connect with them. And I still do these days, uh, you know, because of the Amherst listserv for the black alumni. Um, and it's always amazing to hear these people talk and, and write and uh, great intellects and great sense of history. So I, you know, I made it work for myself, but I'm definitely impressed and uh, hopeful with the numbers at Amherst being so much more diverse than it was when I was there. It's amazing to actually see progress, progress that actually can be um, documented by numbers. Obviously, numbers are not going to solve the main issues of, you know, racism and, and white privilege and power structures and all that kind of stuff, but it helps. You know, and so in Amherst, I just hope that the conversation will continue. I don't have the answers to everything, but I am hopeful that there are, you know, brilliant students, brilliant professors, caring administrators, and wonderful alums that uh, are keeping our eye on the ball and our goals for the future.
I know that people say math and music are connected, but for me, it's music and prose, it's music and words, it's music and stories, it's music and uh, history, um, it's music and struggle. Music and struggle, you know, because my parents sung about struggle their whole lives and they lived a life, you know, everyone who lived a life in those days and still now has to deal with struggle and, and, and a way forward um, and trying to, you know, search for freedom and accessibility and etc. All music featured in this episode was performed either by Freddie Bryant or his parents, Beatrice Rippey and Carol Hollister. The track you're hearing now is Miss Rippey performing Mother to Son by Langston Hughes, accompanied by Carol Hollister on piano. For a full list of tracks, please see the episode notes. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bet Schumacher, and Sandy Janelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Archival support from Michael Kelly.